Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Guys can be hard to shop for, but Harry's is the perfect gift. He doesn't need another wallet or more socks this year, right? Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com slash fool to get a $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, November 26th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's show, we're going to talk small cap financial stocks. We'll tackle some listener emails. We'll tap into Twitter, of course, and give you one to watch for the coming week. But we begin this week talking about the king of e-commerce as Amazon continues to pursue the massive market opportunity, not only in e-commerce, but out there in payments. And we talk a lot about payments here, as you know. So joining me in the studio this week, as usual, a certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. We took the kids up to my family in Maryland and just got back from that. And I actually had a chance to use Amazon Pay for some Black Friday shopping. Well, so I'm feel- really looking forward to talking about that. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to be uh, digging into that a little bit. But you guys had a nice Thanksgiving weekend, it sounds like then. We did. The trip was surprisingly smooth for a 10-hour car ride with two small children. Holy cow, 10 hours. How many times did you have to stop for that trip? <laughs> oh, I mean, we got little kids who are one of like them was potty hour. training. So. <laughs> Well, we're glad to have you back here and joining us. And uh, I, I, yeah, you, you, you mentioned Amazon Pay, so let's just kick right off here talking about Amazon uh, because there are a few different points to this discussion. I think we want to get to. Uh, we're talking primarily about Amazon's effort to gain more more share in the payment space, and and that is through Amazon Pay. Now, I think we can couple this discussion also with the fact that according to Adobe Analytics, Black Friday pulled in a record $6.22 billion in online sales, which was up almost 24% from a year ago. And it was the first day in history to see more than $2 billion in sales stemming from smartphones. And I think that's where I really want to pick this conversation up here, because not only are we living in an e-commerce world, we're certainly living in a mobile world as well. And for a lot of us, Amazon Pay probably isn't top of mind, yet we're reading now that they're really making efforts uh, to gain share. It seems like initially with with perhaps uh, companies that are not necessarily direct competitors, like gas stations or restaurants, uh, what have you, but but it, it does seem like they are trying to take a little bit more of that role in the transaction, much like we've seen Apple do to date with Apple Pay, but it's also not just Apple, right? There's all these payments companies out there uh, trying to get a, a little piece of that transaction. So, talk a little bit about your experience with Amazon Pay. Give us a little bit of your perspective here as, as to what Amazon, what the end game here is, is with Amazon. Sure. Well, I was on a, a certain retailer's website. I can't tell you what I bought or who I bought it from because it was an anniversary gift from my wife who listens uh, to the show. So you really can't. Um, I was going to say you can't or you won't, but it's both, I guess. Yeah. So I, I really can't. But it was a, I'd say like a small business, like something you would see like featured on Shark Tank. Um, and it kind of struck me as somewhere that gets most of their sales from Amazon to begin with. So this was directly on their website. And I went to check out. They were having a great Black Friday sale. So I went to their website, selected my products, and went to the checkout. And there were two buttons. There was a PayPal button and an Amazon Pay button. And kind of curious, because I'd never seen that on a merchant's website. Amazon really hasn't hasn't pushed it until recently. 
So I clicked Amazon Pay, and it just took me right to my Amazon checkout, where I have my Amazon credit card already set up. And it was just like checking out for a normal Amazon purchase. It took me about two clicks, and it was very easy. I was actually going to use PayPal, and I kind of like this alternative because it lets me keep all my purchases in one place. So I'd say about you know 50% of what my wife and I order is already through Amazon. So it lets me kind of organize my purchases into one payment portal, and I actually think PayPal might have something to worry about here. That's you know that's a good perspective there, and I I want to I want to ask you because the 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 initial thing that comes to mind here, the where I think that they may have a little bit of a challenge. Um, we know that that at to date the U.S. consumer isn't necessarily all that digital wallet focused yet, right? That's still something that we're in the very nascent stages of this, and I think it's going to take a while. Uh, for for that behavior to really change, and I mean, I think you look at something like Apple Pay, for example, as clever as as that is, uh, consumers still aren't embracing that wholeheartedly. So whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay or Amazon Pay, that the digital wallet, there's a big opportunity there. So that explains why Amazon is pursuing this, of course. Now, I I think that the one holdup, the one hangup here I have with with uh, Amazon, in in the situation, the process that you just described. It sounds like there's just a little bit more friction in there versus if I go somewhere, uh, whatever website it may be, and I have the option to pay with Apple Pay. And and when it says you want to pay with Apple Pay, and then you can just use your fingerprint, your thumbprint to verify the transaction as opposed to having to go to another website and verify that purchase. So, I guess what I'm getting at here is ultimately, it feels like Apple and to a degree Google have a hardware advantage that Amazon doesn't have to date. Does that make sense? Yes, but here's kind of my perspective on that. I I don't necessarily think this will steal any market share from people who are already on Apple Pay or already on PayPal. If you're comfortable with something, both of those are very, like you just said, very easy portals. They both have hardware advantages over Amazon. But there's a lot of people who are not using digital wallets yet who are already comfortable with Amazon's checkout process. So I don't necessarily think they're going to steal market share or steal existing customers from any of the other ones, but I do think it gives them kind of an advantage kind of recruiting new adopters to digital wallets. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think you're right. I think this is not – we talk about this all the time. It's not a zero-sum game. It's it's not as if one wins and everybody else loses. I mean, this is a massive opportunity out there. I mean, at the end of the day, money is is going everywhere. I mean, that's what dictates – Everything basically is money getting from point A to point B. Uh, so, so pursuing even just a small piece of that pie uh, makes a lot of sense, particularly in Amazon's case, because really you got to figure for them this is a very easy bet to make. I mean, the business certainly isn't hinging on it. At the most, I mean, they get just a tiny scrape of that transaction. I mean, when Apple Pay is used, Apple gets a very, very tiny scrape of that transaction. It's not terribly meaningful. Now, it becomes meaningful if you have a billion people using it on a consistent basis and obviously we're not to that point yet but but even beyond the financial implications i would imagine that that a company like amazon is as smart as they are about using data and doing things with that data just gleaning the data from transactions like these uh would be would be seen as a a reasonable payoff right and that that seems to really be what they're after here um i've actually read um amazon is subsidizing the the swipe fees for merchants, or not swipe fees, but whatever the swipe fee equivalent of <laughs> digital wallet fees are, um, they're it's actually subsidizing fee. the fees 
to make it to get retailers to put the Amazon Pay button on their website at a lower cost to them. So it's pretty fair to say Amazon's really not making money on this, but they are. It's it's expanding their reach, and anything that expands Amazon's reach, data wise, um, customer wise, merchant wise, is good for a, the long term business. Yep, makes sense to me. And you know, I I don't know that I would ever. I don't know that I put. I don't think Amazon's going to ever really have a hardware advantage, at least on the smartphone side. Like, I mean, obviously they tried with a Fire Phone that was just, they were late to the game, tried to do something a little bit different, but really there was nothing terribly compelling to get someone to switch, particularly if you're already used to a certain operating system or whatnot. I'm also as skeptical uh, when it comes to incorporating things like voice assistant technology and actually paying for things. Uh, But with all that said, I mean, things change very quickly, and technology is is just evolving uh, seemingly on a daily basis. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be interested to see where Amazon takes this. And uh, it's it's you know Amazon Pay has been around for a while. It's just not much. They haven't they haven't done much with it. Uh, but but perhaps we are entering this this stage now where consumers are going to be a bit more open to adopting digital payments and and digital wallets and whatnot. And if that's the case, I mean, clearly we can see there is a a lot of a lot of uh, market share there to pick up, and so so for Amazon to try to be a part of that makes perfect sense. Yeah, to be perfectly clear, um, PayPal, Amazon Pay, and Apple Pay all have tremendous tremendous growth runway. So I'm not saying that you know PayPal's growth rate could go from 20 percent to 19 percent because of this. I'm not saying they're going to really suffer. So just to be clear, we still love PayPal on a long term basis. Gotcha. Okay, so you want to make sure we can respond to the inevitable email that we get. We're not saying short PayPal, long Amazon, right? You're yeah, probably just the, saying go long both, right? <laughs> it's, it's reasonably to, to just diversify your portfolio and own shares in both companies. Right. I'm saying both of these are going to be winners. I could just see like the tweet storm going off in my head when I was <laughs> in the middle of saying that. Well, we'll get out in front of it if that does happen. All <laughs> right, let's take a look here. Uh, uh, new new topic for discussion here. We got a tweet a few days back, uh, Matt, from at uh, Chris M underscore Jones. And, and Chris said, would love for the two of you to cover some small cap financials. Uh, for example, uh, AX, UVE. Full disclosure, UVE was my first stock and now is my largest position. So, so the bottom line is here, Chris was hoping we could take a look into some more small cap financial stocks. And, you know, Matt, you and I love talking stocks. And when you get to find compelling small cap financials, then that's, we could probably talk about that for the next four hours. But unfortunately, we're not going to be given that much time. So, uh, we thought we would take an opportunity here to target two companies each. Uh, in the small cap space that we like, and see if we could give Chris a couple of ideas, companies that we like, some things to keep an eye on with them. Um, and we're going to start the discussion here with a company, Matt, you know, Sonovus, ticker is SNV. Uh, give us your your elevator pitch for Sonovus. Yeah, well, this is a, a bank that I drive by a lot because it's a southern regional bank. Um, the reason I like this, I like Synovus is one, they're profitable Two, they're growing very fast. So on the side of profitability, the, uh, return on assets of a little over 1.3 return on equity of 14% are both great numbers. Um, the loan portfolio is growing at a pretty impressive rate, um, about four and a half percent a year. And they're making acquisitions on a pretty aggressive basis and they're actually getting really good deals. Um, I reported earlier over the summer, 
that Synovus decided to acquire a bank called FCB Financial, a Florida community bank, and they actually wound up getting a discount to the share price. Generally, when you acquire a company, you're paying a premium, and then that's why the shares jump up right after the acquisition is announced. So they're, this will make them one of the biggest regional banks around. Um, they got a great price, and excuse me, they expect it to be immediately accretive to earnings. So I kind of like, I really like Synovus. Um, very profitable, well-run bank. Big ambitions. Okay, good. Hey, so uh, Ameris Bancor is, is uh, the first one I'm going to talk about here, and uh, listeners have probably heard me talk about it before. Ameris Bancor ticker is ABCB. Uh, this is just a, a not so little uh, regional bank in the in the southeast, and the home base is Moultrie, Georgia. And full disclosure, my mom and dad actually live in Moultrie, Georgia. I've played golf with a couple of these guys at Ameris Bancor before. I mean, that was not through design. It was just it's small town living there, and so everybody knows everybody. Um, and, and I do own shares of Ameris Bancor uh, as well. Uh, but this is a, a company I found back in 2011, really at the depths of the financial crisis, when a lot of these small cap banks, a lot of these tiny banks, particularly in Georgia, for whatever reason, uh, were going belly up. They just they had bad loan books and, and really overextended themselves. And Ameris Bancor has just always been a very well-run, fairly conservative operation, not trying to uh, write checks that, that the bank can't cash, so to speak. And, and what that resulted in over the course of the few years in that recovery from the, uh, from the financial crisis, the FDIC recognized Ameris Bancor's uh, excellence in operating – and and started using Ameris as a partner in rolling up some of these failed financial institutions to give them at least a little bit of an exit strategy so that everything didn't just go completely uh, to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. And so what this ultimately did for Ameris, it gave them a very risk-free way to build up uh, their their asset base and their deposit base. I mean, the FDIC basically said, "Hey, any losses are going to be on us. We just want you to help us in getting these things rolled up, and there's going to be nothing really ultimately but upside there for you." And 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 fast forward to today, that really has uh, worked out for the company. They they now have a uh, total assets near close to eleven and a half billion dollars and uh, tangible book uh, value per share of close to eighteen dollars. In, in all in all, I think that what you have here in Ameris is a still small cap bank, around $2 billion market cap, uh, that has grown its presence beyond just that Georgia footprint. Uh, they have, I think, plenty of opportunities to continue to make some, some smart acquisitions going forward, and they certainly have done that. A recent purchase of Atlantic Coast Financial, uh, as well as Hamilton State Bank shares, it's all helping them really grow this this business out. Longtime CEO Edwin Hortman uh, stepped down recently, and the new CEO Dennis Zember, uh, who has been with the company for uh, a number of years, held the position of COO and CFO. So that's all to say. I, I expect that that conservative, smart, long term focus mentality uh, to continue here with Ameris Bank Corps. Uh, certainly have developed a, a long track record of success. I suspect we will see that uh, going forward as well. Uh, so that's that's one of those little small cap financials I really like. Uh, speaking of banks, Matt, you wanted to uh, take a trip out west and talk a little bit about Bank of Hawaii, right? Yeah, and well, since we're talking about some of your disclosures, um, disclosure: I've never been to Hawaii, so I've never been I to have. a Bank of Hawaii branch. <laughs> <laughs> I was but looking to Bank see if Hawaii we could get is, like a full a full branch of Hawaii. That'd be pretty sweet, actually. I could uh, if there if there was an office there, I might you know sign up for it. I was pitching that and or the Bahamas. I, I would gladly take either post. 
<laughs> but so I've never actually been to a bank of Hawaii, but I know a lot about them as a bank, and they're definitely they're one of my favorite small cap banks. I've been watching them for a little while. Um, not only are they ex- an extremely profitable bank, but they're along with one other bank, they have a pretty dominant market share in Hawaii. If you're in Hawaii, you generally don't go to like a Bank of America or Wells Fargo. You're either a Bank of Hawaii or first Hawaiian bank, the other major bank out there. So they have a very big market share, big, great reputation on the island. Don't expect too much growth as in geographic growth. They're not, you know, you're not going to have a Bank of Hawaii branch in Kansas or anything like that. <laughs> but Hawaii's economy is doing great. It's growing at quicker, at a faster rate than the rest of the U.S., so it's one of the fastest growing economies. Again, great reputation. Uh, the loan portfolio, just for example, grew about 7% over the past year. Most banks were in the 3 to 4% range. When If you look back at our episode where we covered the big banks. So that's just kind of a testament to how strong the Hawaiian economy is right now. Um, consistently profitable throughout any economy. Uh, just kind of a little fun fact. Uh, after Citigroup, Complete, almost collapsed during the financial crisis. They brought in Bank of Hawaii's former CEO to to be the new chairman of the board. So, every, the big guys on Wall Street know how profitable Bank of Hawaii is and how well run it is. Um, so it's definitely it's not a cheap bank stock. I'd put it in kind of the valuation category of a U.S. bank corp. But like just just like Sanofi, about about a one point three percent return on assets. An 18% return on equity, which is unheard of for a, a brick-and-mortar bank. Um, so highly profitable, very, very low default rate. I think it was like a, a 0.2% non-performing assets rate, which is extremely low. So great economy, great quality bank, great history of just being a well-run institution. Um, that's why it's one of my favorites. Hopefully, I get to visit one one day. I feel like, yeah, this is just the opportunity to bring this thing under official coverage here at The Fool because I have to believe, I mean, the annual meeting is out there in Hawaii, right? I mean, that's got to be where they have the annual meeting. So then you got to go out there, right? I mean, that just it's seems to be the biggest no-brainer, right? We'll, we'll look into that uh, later this week, Matt. Uh, let's wrap it up here. Chris had made specific mention here of a company, Universal Insurance Holdings. I believe this is the company he said this has grown into his biggest position. Uh, and let me tell you, Chris, I think that's not actually such a bad move here. From what I have seen with Universal Insurance Holdings, this is a pretty compelling company here. This is the largest private personal residential homeowners insurance company in Florida. Uh, and, and again, when I say Florida, let's be very clear, most of their business is in Florida. Only 26% of their total insured business is outside of Florida. So this is a Florida play. They they are in 16 states, but right now this is a Florida play. They are seeking to expand that footprint and and uh and diversify geographically speaking. But but generally speaking, I mean, we love the insurance business from the in- investor's perspective because insurance is one of the it's one of those things that's always going to be needed. And particularly if you're a homeowner, I mean, chances are you've got a mortgage, you got to pay that mortgage, and your mortgage company is going to require it. And even if you've got your mortgage paid off, I mean, nobody who owns a home isn't going to have some type of insurance on it. Uh, so, so it seems like Universal Insurance Holdings has been focusing on its its primary market of Florida for a number of years uh, here. It is a small company, one one $1.5 billion market cap. But I tell you, if you bought this thing five years ago, you're feeling really good about it. Stock's up close to 300% since then. 
Um, now, a big measure for us when we look at insurance companies is is through book value, and and we can see through Universal's book value that they are growing. In 2013, that book value was at five dollars and twenty cents per share, uh, versus today, which is fifteen dollars and twenty cents per uh, per share. Uh, obviously, that that indicates the company is growing uh, and growing, you know, at, at a healthy rate. Uh, another metric that we look. To with insurance companies to understand if they're writing good books of business is the combined ratio. And we like to see that combined ratio under 100%. That tells us that they are writing good business, profitable business. And the combined ratio for Universal in 2017 chalked up at 84.4%. And that actually was a little bit up uh, historically from what we've seen in, in, in years past. So I think you know, this is a, it's a well-run business. CEO Sean Downs has been there for a while, has plenty of experience in the industry. And I think the risks with a business like this, particularly in a state like this, is is the natural disasters, right? I mean, Florida is known for its storms. But I think the flip side of that, and I would push back a little bit on every insurance company in Florida is planning for that stuff. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So, so I like to believe that management is certainly keeping that uh, on, on their radar as well. And, and the way that insurance companies tend to hedge that risk is by reinsurance. Uh, so, so all in all, it does look like uh, Universal Insurance Holdings, it looks like they're doing a lot of good things with the business. Based on the metrics, the business looks very healthy. Strong balance sheet appears to be very capable management there as well. Uh, Chris, I think you could feel pretty good about owning that one. Uh, so, hey, congratulations on your gains, and, and here's to many, uh, many more dollars in the future. Uh, but, but Chris, thank you for the question. We always love taking a look at uh, new stocks, and this gave us a chance to dig into a few new names and, and hopefully give our listeners a few additional uh, ideas for their watch list. And speaking of our listeners, it's as good a time as any to remind them that uh, we thank Harry's for supporting this in, uh, this episode of Industry Focus. Now, listen, I'm not the biggest fan of shaving, okay? I'm kind of a lazy guy when it gets down to it. It means I just need to get up earlier. And hey, like George Costanza said, why shave every day? It just grows right back. Well, let me tell you, as a loyal user for a long while now of Harry's products, I'm going to tell you, this is the biggest no-brainer subscription I'll ever have. Harry's makes long-lasting quality products at a super reasonable price, and it is a practical gift that he will actually use. You'll save him money on blade refills. You can personalize it to make it feel special. And of course, it's backed by Harry's 100% quality guarantee. So if he doesn't love it, hey, returns are quick and hassle-free. As a special offer for fans of the show, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including Harry's limited edition holiday sets, and when you go to harrys.com slash fool. Plus, you'll get free shipping. This offer is for new and returning customers and is only available for the holidays. So remember, each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle with an option to engrave even now, Matt. I mean, think about that. You could get your own shaving handle there with your name on it or maybe your TMF name, whatever. Be pretty sweet, huh? You using Harry's yet, Matt? I'm not. I need uh, to try it. Sounds like we got uh, we got another uh, got another sign up there. German engineered five blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave. Foaming shave gel for a rich lather. A travel cover to protect your blades. Handsome holiday gift box. I know Chris Hill was a big fan of that holiday gift box. And hey, listen, if you just want something for yourself, redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. So get your holiday shopping done early, people. 
Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Post haste. Go to harrys.com slash fool to get a $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash fool. Okay, Matt, let's take a look at some email questions we've pulled in over the past couple of weeks. We had a question from Jay Otto in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. He says, I love your podcast, and I enjoy listening to you on the other podcasts as well. Thanks, Jay. You know, I like being on those podcasts. I think he's talking about me, Matt, but I'm not sure. He had a question on REITs. <laughs> and I'm going to give you this question, Matt, because you're a REIT guy. Is there any difference in investing in REIT stocks versus other equities? I think I've heard in the past that there are different tax implications with these stocks. Is that true? Yes, that is absolutely true. Um, provided that you hold them in a taxable account, most dividend stocks quali- or have what are called qualified dividend status, which gets favorable tax treatment. Um, think long-term capital gains rates are the same rates that apply to qualified dividends. So, you- Generally, most people pay a 15% dividend tax rate if you're in any of the middle tax brackets. Um, So if you have a REIT, though, it's considered pass-through business income for the most part. So you are generally taxed at your ordinary income tax rate for a REIT. Now, there are a couple kind of caveats to mention. One, your REIT dividend is actually a combination of a qualified dividend and a non-qualified dividend, just depending on the quarter and the particular REIT. Most of it is usually ordinary income with a little bit that you'll get a favorable tax treatment on. The second thing is that thanks to the tax reform bill, REITs are actually considered qualify for that pass-through deduction um, as small business income. Um, so whatever income you do get from REITs, you can take a 20% deduction for that before your ordinary income tax rates are replied. So there's a lot of moving parts here. The situation is definitely a little more complicated with REITs than it is for other stocks. But that's why I love to I always recommend REITs in retirement accounts so you don't have to worry about this. But yes, if you hold them in a regular brokerage account, there are big tax differences. And the long story short is that REITs are a little more complicated. All right. Good information to know. Now, Jay has a follow-up as well. Uh, another topic you hit on last week was Buffett's large investments in the big banks in the last quarter. You guys talked about how it should be a good environment for the big banks with rising interest rates. Can I assume the same opportunity is there for smaller banks, such as Axos or a bank we just talked about a minute ago, Ameris Bank Corp? Yeah, and um, it's definitely the opportunity is definitely there. Um, but you have to remember that certain banking products are tied to short-term interest rates and some are tied to long-term interest rates. For example, if a bank is a big credit card business, credit card rates go up immediately when the Fed raises rates. So those be- those businesses are already seeing a big benefit as the Fed has hiked rates about eight times so far in this cycle. On the other hand, if you, the, you don't have a big credit card operation and you rely on long-term rates such as mortgages and auto loans, those really haven't kept pace with the shorter end of the spectrum. So it depends which end of the yield curve is moving as to which banks benefit the most. It's not really small cap versus large cap. It's how is their loan portfolio made up, uh, as in like short-term loans like credit cards versus long-term loans like mortgages and, and auto auto loans that are not at variable rates that kind of move with longer-term treasury yields, not the federal funds rate. So the short answer to your question is yes, but 
look into how the bank makes its money, and it'll tell you what rates need to rise. That's a great point. That's a great point indeed. Uh, now we have one more question from Landon Boring. And Landon, come on, man, you're not boring. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Landon says, I really enjoy the industry-focused podcasts. Thanks, Landon. We enjoy doing them. I have a question about the War on Cash podcast from November 19th, 2018. Jason and Matt mentioned that they like the buybacks of Visa, but are okay with small dividends to future to fund future growth. I'm confused. Don't, buy, don't both buybacks and dividends decrease the amount of cash to fund future growth. And he goes on to say he would personally prefer dividends over buybacks. Um, that's obviously cash in the pocket. Uh, but on the other hand, increasing dividends generally represents a much stronger commitment by management in the faith of the business because companies generally do not like to cut the dividend, and dividends provide a more direct reward to shareholders. Uh, and Landon, yeah, I mean, I think you make a very good point here that regardless of whether it's a dividend or a buyback, the company has to fund that one way or another. Now, when you have a business like Visa or MasterCard, for that matter, that is as big as they are, right, and and uh, have very high margin business models as they both do, uh, that's the nice thing about that that type of investment opportunity for investors is that while the growth is going to be there, the growth will generally be organic and it'll be tied to general consumer spending. Uh, these are business models that generate a lot of of surplus cash. They have to do something with it. Um, and and so there's only so much they can reinvest in the business before they start perhaps getting a little bit outside of their circle of competence, and and you start seeing some deteriorating uh, returns on those investments. So you reward your shareholders either through a dividend or share repurchases. I t- I tend to prefer dividends just because, like you said, uh, Landon, they are cash in the pocket. Uh, but by the same token, uh, these these companies do know that material buybacks over the course of time can play out on the share price as well. I mean, the fact of the matter is when you reduce that number of shares outstanding, that's going to give you a little bit of a different look on the value of of those shares, right? It should, in theory, make them a little bit more expensive over time. Uh, All in all, I mean, we like to see a healthy mix there and just feel like with Visa and MasterCard, uh, perhaps the opportunity there is to grow that dividend a little bit more substantially over time. And that's what we'll be hoping that they do. But uh, Landon, thank you very much for the question. Indeed, uh, JU as well. Okay, we'll tap into Twitter here real quick just for a couple of comments. Uh, one from at Cricket99238. Niraj says he was delighted to learn about the XLF Holdings Spider ETF for financials. Thanks for introducing it. And with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan as its largest holding, it seems a no brainer investment. The market is certainly giving a wonderful opportunity to buy this stock basket. And Matt, that fund is what you were talking about just a couple of weeks ago, right? That's correct. Um, it's basically if you don't want to put all your money in one bank stock, which it's not practical for most people listening to own, you know, ten bank stocks like Warren Buffett does. So if you don't, if you're not comfortable owning an individual bank, you're not worried about you. You don't, you're not really sure which one's healthy, which one's not healthy, which one's growing in the right way, which one's growing in the wrong way, things like that. Uh, an an index fund like the XLF especially one like that that has very low fees can be a great way to just get exposure to the whole sector if it does as well as Warren Buffett thinks it's going to. Good deal. Good deal. We also have a tweet from at Bucky Cat. 
And Bucky Cat wonders if buying Eventbrite stock gives you a discount on buying tickets from them, because I buy a lot of event tickets from them between Eventbrite and Ticketfly. And listeners may remember that Eventbrite was the stock, uh, my, my one to watch last week, I believe it was. A uh, little bit of a... A uh, little bit of a, a direction away from a direct payments company, but the relationship with the uh, payments companies in the space and just generally speaking, the company itself, I think, had a lot of opportunities for investors. And, and Bucky Cat, yeah, I don't know if you get discounts there. That would be pretty sweet. But it's good to know that you're buying a lot of tickets from them because, hey, I own Eventbrite shares, and, and that, in all honesty, should mean their share price uh, should be going up in, in the future if you keep them buying all those tickets. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would own a lot, a lot more stocks if they would offer discounts. Um, <laughs> a lot more people would buy things like Fitbit stock, uh, <laughs> or um, I think Berkshire Hathaway is the only one I know of that gives discounts to shareholders. Yeah, for that, all of its subsidiaries, that would be pretty sweet if that was a more consistent behavior. Off the shareholders' discount, I would utilize that all the time. I think. But if you're a Berkshire shareholder, you can get a discount on Geico Auto Insurance. I don't yes, know if you knew that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point there. And if you go to the Berkshire meeting, there's all sorts of opportunities to buy the stuff that. Uh, you know, from the companies that they own, particularly Seize Candy. That line always seems to be stretching out the door. <laughs> well, as always, we love it when you reach out to us uh, via email. So please email us here at industryfocus at fool.com. And of course, you can get us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. Keep doing it because clearly, if you do it, we're going to answer your questions here on the show because we just did it. All right. Okay, Matt, it is about that time this week. We're going to wrap things up with our one to watch. What is the stock that you'll be watching this week? It's not really a financial sector stock. Um, I'm looking at Amazon. Oh, my. Uh, we, we, we talked about them quite a bit. Um, they're down roughly 25% from the highs. And I think um, I think that their new payment system is going to have some traction. Like I said, I personally think they're going to that PayPal and the others are going to lose a little bit of their growth trajectory because Amazon has a big existing customer base for this to, this to really play well with. Um, and not just because of that, I think Amazon's a good value. I thought Amazon was a pretty decent value at about $2,000 a share. <laughs> yeah. So I really think it's a good value now. Um, and there's talk of them, you know, offering some kind of co-branded checking account product. So maybe they will be a financial sector stock after all, but, I, I, I love Amazon this week. Yeah, I put nothing past them. That's a good one. Um, I'm going to go with Tiffany this week. Ticker is TIF. And I know this may seem a little bit of an odd pick because it's not directly a financial, but I've covered Tiffany for a number of years now. And what I have found is that Tiffany is a very good indicator of, of how the economy is doing and how the market thinks the economy is going to be doing here in, in the coming quarters. And we're, of course, at a point right now, you know, what we're in right now, Matt, is what I like to call the Larry David economy. It's, everything is pretty, pretty, pretty good. And I, and I hope that that will continue. But I think on Wednesday, when Tiffany's earnings come out, we'll get a better idea. Uh, management recently had raised guidance last year or last quarter. Uh, which was impressive, I thought. They're going to be investing a lot in their New York flagship store here in the coming year. Uh, and, and that really does matter for a company like Tiffany that depends on that physical presence. Uh, and what they do that I think is just so phenomenal, they really protect that brand so well because it is a luxury brand. They don't resort to fire sales. You're not going to find big Cyber Monday half-off deals with Tiffany. They protect that brand uh, and again, do a very good job so that when times are good, like they are right now, 
the stock feels it, and, and it looks like it's feeling it right now. When times get a little tough, certainly the stock feels it again. And honestly, I think that's where investors need to consider uh, potentially investing in a business like this is when is when uh, times get a little bit tougher. And I'm sure on Wednesday we'll get a better idea of what management sees coming around here for the next uh, next full year. Certainly, the holiday quarter guidance. Uh, just a lot of things you can glean from this uh, luxury retailer in Tiffany. So we'll keep an eye on it. Matt, thanks for joining us this week. Always appreciate you Skyping in. Glad you guys had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you had the same. Yep, it was nice and quiet, and I'm still full. (laughs) Well, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.